I uh, spent over 20 years in the Lower Mainland, and uh, they were great years, um, but I spent a lot of time driving. And if you have been in the Lower Mainland, you understand that. One of the things that you also do is spend a lot of time driving over bridges. And uh, as a side note, every time I go over, particularly the first Narrows Bridge, I think that's the last place in the world I want to be when there's an earthquake. Um, but nonetheless, there are bridges all over the place in the Lower Mainland. There are the first and second Narrows Bridge. There is the Alex Fraser Bridge. There is the Port Mann Bridge. There is the Batula Bridge and many other bridges that make it necessary and possible for you to travel from point A to point B in your car. If those bridges weren't there, you would be stuck, um, uh, certainly at least not be able to get around in your vehicle. As I was thinking about this particular passage, we have an opportunity this morning to reflect on what God has done for us through Jesus Christ as building a bridge between one way of life and another way of life. There are two ways of life described in this particular text, and you may have noticed them. Um, We'll certainly point them out as we go to them or through them. One way of life is described in verse 3, and it's a way of life that begins by saying we were once foolish and disobedient, and we'll consider that in a couple moments. And then it describes the new way of life in verse 7, which is a life of hope. It's a life that is a life of hope because we have been justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get from the life described in verse 3 to the life described in verse 7. It's through the bridge that Jesus has built and which is explained in verses 4 to 6. And that's what I hope to take us through in a very brief way this morning. I think it's helpful to start in verse 3, which describes a particular way of life. And it also helps us understand why we need Christmas and Easter. Again, verse 3 is fairly clear and it's fairly blunt. It says, for We ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is not a real flattering picture, but this is a description of humanity. It's not a comprehensive description. We could look at many other passages in the in scriptures and find a more comprehensive description, but it's certainly a representative description of humanity, life lived apart from God. It's what we are like when we're left to ourselves. It's what we are like when we are uh, on our own, examining our own hearts and minds. And again, it's not a pretty picture, but it highlights the great relief that mankind needs and the help we need. And so let's consider this kind of life for just a couple moments. He begins by telling us that we were once foolish. Foolish doesn't mean they're uh, mentally deficient, but it means morally deficient. It means spiritually blind. It means that we lived our life without regard to God. The second description is disobedient. Disobedient is always is also a description that characterizes humankind. We don't like to obey others. We don't like to obey authority. We don't like to obey our parents. And certainly, we don't want to obey God. And so our lives are characterized by disobedience. He says that we were deceived. The clearest deception that he's referring to is spiritual deception. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible will understand the story of Adam and Eve, which is uh, the prime description of deception that we all experience as Adam and Eve were told what they could and couldn't eat in the garden. The evil one came along and and deceived them and said, no, if you actually eat that fruit, you will be more than what God always intended you to be. 
And we know the story that because they ate of the fruit, we are in the situation that we find ourselves. He talks about being enslaved. Enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. We all like to tell ourselves that we are in control of our passions and pleasures. But when we actually sit down and think about it, and sometimes we have the opportunity to come to this realization, we are actually enslaved by them. They control us. He also says that we embrace malice and envy. Again, these aren't terms that we like to think about and like to think of as self-descriptors, but we're often filled with ill will toward other people. We hope for their downfall, or we look for them to slip up, or we certainly don't want the best for them. We envy what they have. We envy their jobs, or their spouses, or their children, or their families, or their boats, or their cars, or uh, their position. But we, we look at them, and we, we want what they have. We're hateful. We want to see others in pain and in hurt, and we hope the worst for them. And we are hated. It's this, this tension of hating and being hated. That's a description that he says. That's, that's one point in life. Of, it's a description of human nature. And it's not the kind of verbal self-portrait that most of us would be proud of, nor that we would write of ourselves, but it is correct. When we are in point A, we're not easy to get along with, nor are we willing to submit to others. But the wonderful thing about this passage is it says that that's not where we have to stop. It says, in fact, that that for we ourselves once were. It's an amazing reality. It says that, that that's how, what characterizes all people, but not all are still there any longer. The clear implication is that we don't have to stay there, that some have changed, that there has been a transformation, that, that now they are different. And, and I thought to myself, well, what accounts for this difference? How is this portrait able to change? Is it something that you or I can do? Do we go for an extreme makeover? You, some of you who are a, a, a little bit older would remember a, a TV series that they used to have the extreme makeover. And they would take somebody who wasn't very flattering and they would hold them up somewhere for two or three weeks and they would do all this stuff to them. And then they would gather all their family and friends and they would wheel them out of this limousine and down this uh, red carpet and all of a sudden they'd pull back the screen and there'd be this whole new person. They had this care or this extreme makeover. Is that what we're talking about here? Something that we do to ourselves? No, it says in verse 4, an amazing word. It's a word that begins to point us to the centrality of Christmas. It says, but. This is point A. This is one way of life, but. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. The reason for this transformation, this reason for the the ability to go from point A to point B, from one way of life to another way of life, is because of something that God has done for us. It's a rescue mission. It's a bridge that He has built that enables us to get from point A to point B. That's the reality of we once were. It's no longer, we are no longer that. And there is a new portrait now that's revealed about us. The Bible describes it a number of ways. It says that we have moved from darkness to light. It, mean, it tells us that we have moved from death to life. It tells us here that we have gone from the old to the new. 
because, again, of what God has done for us in Christmas and Easter. I will just take a couple moments with verse 4. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see there what it says. It's a rather a, an amazing summary of Christmas. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's a beautiful description of Christmas. And I think that's why so many love Christmas. It's this happy time. It's when the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. That doesn't mean that that God just snapped his fingers and into existence came goodness and loving kindness. What it means is that what had always been invisible, what had been hidden, what had been hard for many to see, now became plain for everyone to see. It's the reality that those of us who live on the island experience for a few months out of every year. We live in fog. Some of you have tried to fly out of Nanaimo Airport know what that fog is like. But there's a time in, in, in the cycle of, of the year here where fog just seems to drift in to the island. And that fog can be depressing. You can go for two, three, four, five days with never seeing the sun. Five days with never seeing the stars. Five days with never seeing the beautiful mountains that exist in the background here. But that doesn't mean that they aren't there. What it means is they have been obscured by the fog. And when the fog lifts, you see what has been there all the time. That's what happens at Christmas time. It's like this fog had lifted and the kindness and the goodness of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Goodness is a beautiful word. It means a spirit which is so kind that it's always eager to give a gift that may be necessary. It's a description of God that we find so often in the Bible. A God who is good. A God who is good all the time. All the time God is good. The Bible says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So one of the things that God revealed to us at Christmas was His goodness. The other thing that this passage describes here is His loving kindness. It's a different word than what is normally translated loving kindness in the Old Testament. Here it's a a word from which we get philanthropy from. And we all seem to look up to and have great respect for those who are given to, I'm going to say it wrong, but philanthropy. They're just generous. They have been blessed and and they don't look for people that are deserving. They just see needs and they just over uh, with their abundance, they just meet that need. Well, in a sense, they've learned that from God, who was generous beyond all measure, looked upon us with pity, looked upon us in our distress, acted towards us in compassion, without prejudice, didn't look at barriers, rather with love. And so it says that in Jesus Christ at Christmas, the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. It's staggering. But that, loved one, is is part of the first uh, materials or the aspect of this bridge that has been built that gets us from point A to point B. The second thing that we see here in verses 5 to 6 is the Easter story. Now, it's not to, told to us in the way that maybe you had come expecting here to here this morning, that there is a, a tomb and that the body of Christ was laid in the tomb and that, that, the, then that the, the stone was rolled away and Jesus wasn't there and because he'd been raised by God. That's all true. But this describes more of the background to that. It describes some of the words and the phrases that, that are the result of Easter. And so in verse 5, it says there that he saved us. 
He saved us. This is a word that suggests to us, does it not, that we were in peril. It's a word that suggests to us that the description that is given in verse 3 is a perilous description. That it's a description of a way of life that we need deliverance from. The way of life that's described in verse 3 is a way of life that leads to death. And we have no way of reaching point B, which is eternal life, without the work of God in saving us. There is a great chasm that exists. That chasm is spanned through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating what it says, and if you have your Bibles open, you can see it there. He saved us in verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is hard for many of us to grasp and understand. Even those who have walked with God for a long time, we, we find ourselves sometimes slipping back into this. Well, I contribute to my salvation. God, God, I know you've done the most of the work, God, but, but I had faith, or I give, or I attend a church, or, or I supplement your good work for me by my good works. And so we think that we can build upon what God has done for us. But the Bible is absolutely clear that we contribute nothing to the building of this bridge. We don't contribute materials. We don't contribute expertise. We don't contribute labor. We don't design it. We don't complete it. We contribute nothing to that building of the bridge. In fact, good works are to salvation what an oasis mirage is to a thirsty desert traveler. It's a cruel trick. It's a deception. I was trying to think of this, an illustration that would help us grasp the the notion that if we're at point A, we have no chance of getting to point B on our own. And I was thinking about being lost at sea. We've been seeing so many descriptions of this in the news in the last little while. It's it's such a a sad thing to see uh, many of uh, those in our world that are suffering so deeply. But they were describing uh, a number of weeks, they, they continue to describe the loss of that flight MH370. And they've now sort of narrowed down where they think it went down. But initially, they thought it was even a little bit farther out into the ocean off of the coast of Australia. And some of them were describing that place as one of the farthest places you could ever be from land. That if you ended up there, you were a long, long way away from dry land. In fact, they would say most planes could barely just get there and fly for an hour, hour and a half, and then they'd have to turn around and go back and refuel. It was so far away. I was thinking about that from this then perspective. Say that you were dropped in that particular part of the ocean. No life life jacket, no life raft. And you were said, well, if you can make it to Australia, you'll be safe. Well, we know nobody would make it to Australia. Even if you were Michael Phelps, I doubt you would make it from that point to Australia or to any other dry point of land. In other words, it would be impossible to save yourself. Well, if we can even understand this, the distance between the righteousness that God requires of us and our ability to do good works is exponentially greater than that. And you may be the best person here today, but it will be impossible for you to ever do enough to make it from point A to point B. There is no such thing as self-salvation. 
So he goes on and he says, we're not saved by anything that we have done. And then look at this again, this beautiful word, but according to his mercy. But according to his mercy. God acted in mercy towards us. This is a, another beautiful word that I'm going to ask you to consider even throughout this day. The, the Bible tells us in the description that we have in verse 3, tells us that we have clearly disobeyed, that we have clearly fallen short of what God wants of us. We have strayed from his commands. We have missed the mark that he has set for us. We have re- rebelled against him and we have said to him, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you ruling my life. And yet, he comes to us in mercy. He comes to help us who can't help ourselves. When God acts towards us in mercy, he does not give us what we deserve. That's the description of mercy, not getting what we deserve. This is how it's described in another place in Scripture. As for you, which is speaking to all of humankind, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. You used to live in these, uh, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of this kingdom in the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. That's the same description of verse three, just in different words. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ Jesus. I know I'm stretching the analogy, but God's mercy is like the rebar in that bridge. Everything fixes to it and attaches to it, and that is what gives it strength. It's the mercy of God that spans from point A to point B. But how does God do this? What, what does he do in this? Because we might say, well, I'm forgiven, but, but how do we change? Because it's, it's one thing to be, you know, to be forgiven, but if, if our nature hasn't changed, and if what made us do that in the first place isn't taken away, then in two days later, we'll do the same thing again. Or in a month later, we'll do the same thing again. We're creatures of habit. We follow our nature. So what has God done for us that, that in Christ that allows us then to get from point A to point B. Well, he, he says that here. He says, through whom the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Barry was praying it, but he was cut out. I said it, and I'll say it again. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raises those to life who are dead in their sins and their trespasses. It says here a couple of things. It says that there's a washing that takes place, a a washing through rebirth. It's a cleansing that we all need. It's an inward transformation that takes place in us, and we need to be washed. Well, you say, well, what needs to be washed, Paul? Well, it's described in the Scripture this way. In one place, it says this, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. What that tells me is, is that there's an internal stain. That, 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 that when I sin and when I disobey God, there, there's a mark that happens to my soul that no human soap can wash away. He goes on in another place and it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. When you gossip, 
when you're malicious with your tongue. You don't just hurt others. You stain your own body. Psalm 51, the, the, the description is the psalmist who is recognized his own sin. And then he comes before God and he, he recognizes there's nothing that he can do. And so he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I, I think of that passage every time I look at the mountains with fresh snow. It is so pure. It is so white. And there's a sense, not a sense, the truth is that God says, I will wash you and you will be whiter than that snow. You see, our souls need to be washed. And this is one of the lies that that is being confronted in this text. No matter what you or I do, we cannot wash our souls. That's what some people try and do with good works. They try and get rid of that stain and get rid of that, that dirt that's on their soul by doing good things. But they can't accomplish it. We know from experience, and I know this, that, that we go out, we work in the garden, we work hard all day, or we, we go cut wood and we come home, we're smelly and we're stinky. We can have a shower and we can be made clean. But some of you have had the experience of either doing something terribly wrong or having something terribly wrong done to you, which has hit your soul. And you've tried to have a shower or a bath to wash it clean and you can't. Because the stain is on your soul. But the blood of Jesus can. On Friday we sang this beautiful song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that blood. That makes me white as snow. Our sins are washed away. What no soap therapy or therapy could do, God did through the Holy Spirit who cleanses us and washes us. I don't know about you. Um, there's times when I've looked at little babies and I've wondered at their innocence. I've looked at even my own kids when they were really little and now I look at my grandkids and there's just this beauty and this innocence that's there. And sometimes you may have looked at a, a little child or a little baby and secretly said in your heart, I, I hope for better things for them. I hope that they can live a life that's not marred or marked by the kinds of things that have marked my life. Or maybe you've looked at one of these little children and secretly in your own heart thought, I wish I could press the reset button. I wish I could have a second start. And maybe without even knowing what you're saying, said, I wish I could be born again. And just start all over. That's what this passage is about. It says that can happen. Long ago, one of the prophets wrote these words, words that God spoke. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you, listen to this, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Easter. We're talking about this washing of renewal, this, this rebirth. This, that, that's what allows us to, to live now differently because we are new people inside. 
And he, he says it in the same way in the, in the next phrase there. He says, not only by the washing of regeneration, but also renewal by the Holy Spirit. That is simply rebirth. And the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so when one experiences life that Christ gives through the Spirit, one experiences new birth and new life. And it's beautiful what it says here. It's lavishly poured out on us. It's poured out on us richly through Jesus. If you have time, I would, if you're familiar with the Bible, I would just say, go through the Bible and look at the excessiveness of God. The extravagance of God. He is not miserly. He is not cheap. He is not exacting when it comes to mercy and grace. So much of what you and I do is calculated. It's based on doing what is required or what is expected. And so when we come to a phrase like this, poured out on us generously, it's rather jarring because that's not the normal experience of our life. You get what you pay for. You get what you put into something. Well, here we get way more than we can ever ask or imagine. New life is poured out on us richly through the Spirit of God. And all this is possible because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, which took place. Forty days after Jesus rose from the grave, he went back to heaven. It says that he ascended into heaven. And when he was there, he kept his promise, one of his promises, and that was to send the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit, I've said it again, that same spirit that gave him life, he now sends out to give life to all those who would put their faith and trust in him. Easter is about the love and the mercy of God towards mankind. Is it any wonder that Christians love Easter? Because it's a time when we reflect on the fact that God has saved us. It's a time when we reflect on the fact that God has cleansed us. It's a time when we reflect on the fact that God has made us new. It's a time when we reflect on the fact that God has been excessive towards us in mercy. Christmas means in part, that we see the goodness and loving kindness of God. Easter means that we see something of the excessive mercy of God poured out on us. The final thing is the new way of life that I've been mentioning about, the point B. It's an amazing equation that is the result of Christmas and Easter, and that is eternal life. Verse 7 is very clear there. He says, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is point B. One is a life separated from God without hope. The other is a life justified before God with the hope of everlasting life. And that span has been crossed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justified by his grace. Grace is a beautiful word. Grace is a a, a word which is different than mercy, obviously. It's a grace, it's a word which means that we get what we don't deserve. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. Grace means getting what we don't deserve. And here he talks about the fact that what we get is eternal life. We don't deserve eternal life because we've stuck up our noses at it. We've turned our backs on it. But because of the mercy of God, we can receive eternal life. I was looking up this word justified. As I, I always recognize that as people come to church, 
Um, I may have wrestled with a word for 25, 30 years, but it might be the first time you've ever heard of this word. And so the word justified, I was thinking, well, what does it mean? How do I explain it to people who who wrestle with this word? And so I thought, well, I'll go to the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, and that'll sure to help me. And so I went there, and I and I, I and I found some help. Uh, it said there to provide or to be a good reason for something. So you justify um, your request by giving a good reason. So you might have a curfew of ten o'clock, and you want to stay out to twelve o'clock. And so you provide or give a good reason to your mom or dad why you should be able to stay out an extra two hours. You justify your desire to stay out to noon or to twelve. To provide a good reason for our actions, maybe. Um, your parents come home and you've smashed the window. And they say, well, what did you smash the window in the house for? And so you might say, well, I couldn't find the key that's normally under the mat. The door was locked and I needed to get in the house, so I smashed the window so I could get in the house. So you justify your actions of smashing the window. Um, some of us understand justification as what you do when you're writing a paper. And so you you set the words, you, you line them up in a straight line, you justify them according to a certain uh, spot on the edge of the paper. That's all that the online dictionary gave me. And I thought, well, it's missing something. It's missing the spiritual definition of to justify. The spiritual definition of justify is simply this. We are given a new status of being totally forgiven and counted as righteous in God's sight. Or put another way, we have been pronounced guiltless. We are seen as perfect. It's almost beyond comprehension that that can happen to those of us who are described as we were in verse 3. But because of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, we can be pronounced justified by the grace of God and therefore given the hope of eternal life. What an amazing equation. Christmas plus Easter equals eternal life. What an amazing bridge that God has built from us, making it possible to get from verse 3 to verse 7, making it possible for us to get from an old way of life to a new way of life, making it possible for us who are dead in our sins and our transgressions to become alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the question that I ask, and one of the questions that I asked this, this morning is, what about you? Where are you? Are you at point A? As it's described in this text, do you want to get to point B? The only way that you get from point A to point B is through Jesus Christ. The only way that you get from point A to point B is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's keeping you at point A? You, like many people today, can... Go from point A to point B because of what God has provided for you in Christ. You may not be ready to consider that decision right now. Then what I would encourage you to do, and you might have got a bulletin at the bottom of the page, I listed a couple of the words that were in this text, and I would say go home and think about some of these great phrases or these great words then this afternoon. Maybe they're completely unfamiliar with you. But go home and say, say, you know, I, I've never heard these words or I've wrestled with them. God, if you're out there, help me to understand what they mean. Say, God, I want to know what your goodness looks like. I want to know what your loving kindness feels like.
I want to know if salvation is real. I want to experience your mercy. I want to know if you can actually wash me on the inside. I want to know if if you can make me new again. I want to know if you can take away my sense of condemnation and replace it with a sense of peace because I've been justified. I want to receive your grace. I want for the first time to know what the hope of eternal life feels like. I know that if you go home and ask God to reveal himself to you in these ways, he will. And maybe by the end of this day, you will know that Christmas plus Easter equals eternal life.